this was about as bizarre and as easy as it gets. So the number for me was a number that would allow me to never have to work. I feel like we got top, top, top. I went from a sale of you know five hundred thousand dollars to in debt. One hundred ninety-two million dollars. This is Built to Sell Radio with your host John Warlow. Hey guys, this is John Warlow. This episode of Built to Sell Radio is brought to you by the Value Builder Score. If you haven't got your score yet, I'd encourage you to take 13 minutes and complete the questionnaire you'll find at valuebuilder.com. It'll give you your score on the eight key drivers of company value. You're going to learn some different things about what drives the value of your business. You'll be able to see how you performed on these eight unique factors. Go to valuebuilder.com. Have you ever considered buying a company? I know that may sound crazy, but... As we enter this period in time where more businesses are coming on the market because lots of small business owners are thinking of selling, you know, three out of four business owners, according to the Exit Planning Institute, are planning to sell their business over the next 10 years. And so we're going to run into a period where there's going to be a lot of businesses on the marketplace. That flood of supply may drop prices somewhat, and it may cause a really unique kind of buying opportunity uh, in time. And for you, as you think about growing your business, obviously organic growth is going to be great, but there may be opportunities to tuck in a company maybe a small company that helps you grow very quickly. And that's what Steve Huey did. Steve was uh, uh, in between projects, let's say. He'd had a couple of successful exits, uh, Louisville, Kentucky-based entrepreneur. And he came across a business he thought he could professionalize. It was doing uh, you know, a million and a half in revenue, not a big company, but he bought it. Five short years later, he sold it for $27.5 million, garnering he and his fellow investors, an eight-to-one return on his money. This interview, I think, is a an interesting tale, and it, hopefully it gets you thinking about the possibility of potentially buying a business in the future. Steve actually, in his case, raised money. He's going to talk about how he raised a $4 million round of investment in about a week. Hint, it helps to have some past experience and some good, happy investors that have invested alongside with you in the past. Uh, he'll talk about a quick way to, you know, evaluate what you think your business is worth. Um, He'll talk about a way to buy a business with little of your own money down. Sounds like an infomercial. It's not. Um, How do you handle a buyer when they say one thing and then they lower the price during due diligence? And then he does a great job of distinguishing between an earnout and an escrow, a couple of lingo-y words that are important to know as you go into the negotiation of the sale of your business. Without further ado, here's Steve Huey. Steve Huey, welcome to Built to Sell Radio. Thank you. I'm glad to be here. So, Steve, talk to me a little bit about The Learning House. What kind of company did you guys have? Well, The Learning House uh, helped colleges offer their degree programs online and, and really helped to further distance learning for a lot of the schools, mainly small, private, not-for-profit schools in the United States. And the, the company did everything uh, to help them, to help them develop content, train their faculty, provide faculty support run the overall infrastructure for the schools, do tech support. And uh, probably most importantly, towards the end of our run, we helped them find and recruit students. Oh, interesting. Uh, yeah, we sold, at the time we, that we sold the company, it had grown to almost $8 million with uh, about 125 employees. And the year after we sold, uh, we made the jump to about 13 million and 200 employees. So it was going pretty well. Wow. 
Yeah, fantastic. And I mean, this whole online education thing is exploding, right? Everything from uh, Udemy is a, is a, you know a big platform. Seminars, um, obviously, Lynda.com being acquired by LinkedIn. I mean, this was the space you were playing in, right? Yeah, it was it was red hot at the time. Um, you know, I, since leaving the company a few years ago, I, I've not kept up, but it, it is still the answer to uh, how we help 28 million people who list that they have some college complete their degrees. Yeah, and it's and, a huge, huge number, right? People yeah, drop out for lots of different reasons. Yeah, uh, you know, from everything from their cat has had puppies to, uh, you know, the financial aid problems and everything like that. Big problem. And, you know, they, it was a really great business. It still is. Uh, I was very happy to be a part of it. I'll tell you, John, you know, we, we randomly sampled 50 photos of students that were in the system someplace and uh, 30% of them were women and or I'm sorry, 30% of them were military active duty people huh. and about 60% of them were women. So, you know, it, it, it was a good company, had a lot of uh, social good to it. And, uh, you know, being a part of it was a great experience. And, and did you play that social good up as, you know, had you recruited employees, had you got investors on board? I mean, were you telling that story of the, the not only, the, the, you know, the triple bottom line, that not only the, you know, the fact yeah. that it was profitable, but, but also you're making a contribution? Yeah, you know, it was uh, and still is very important to the people that work there and the employees, which you, you, the reason I said that we picked up uh, 50 images by, at random is I wanted to show the employees who they were working for. You know, it wasn't some faceless corporation. Uh, not that that's a bad thing. Um, it wasn't just the school. It was all these people that we were helping, helping them get an education to help change the lives of them and their families. So it was really awesome. How did that play out in a practical sort of day-to-day sense beyond the, the images of the end customers? What else did you do to galvanize the culture around around this, you know, something bigger than just making money. Yeah. It, so there's, there's, there's two aspects. This is a social good that you can do outside your four walls, but it's, it's also the good and the advancement and the idea of promoting a learning culture inside the company. And we always, we always uh, create or, or furthered the idea that this was, uh, the company was a learning experience for everyone and that we deeply um, um, or highly regarded uh, learning. And so we would do in um, in company trainings during lunchtime, and, and in the lunch the lunch and learns were everything on how to give a public speaking or to do a, a speech to how to make sushi, um, and and you know it sounds a little corny, but for the hundred ish people that worked there, it was more of like a family experience, uh, and and really helped. Uh, we're in a part of the country uh, based here in Louisville. That uh, you know, it doesn't demand the absolute top dollar as some of the coasts do, but also with that, people expect more from, especially the people in the middle of the country. They expect more. They want to have a social environment just as much as some place to earn money. Hmm. Who, so was, who was the we in this in the business, Stephen? In terms of who were the shareholders? Did you have outside investors that were helping you build it? Did you have partners? Yeah, you know, um, our we had a we had a fairly larger investment uh, pool. Our uh, capital came mainly from angel investors and small fund 
uh, small funds, angel funds here in Louisville. And, uh, you know, in some ways it was a, a business who's who of, of people here in Louisville. And in some cases, people you would never have heard of. Uh, even if you're from Louisville. So talk, you know, before we get to the actual exit, talk about the money raising side of things. So when did you first decide uh, to go out and raise external capital instead of just building it out of existing cash flow? So what, what, how we came across the Learning House was, the Learning House was founded by um, a University of Louisville retired professor, Denzel Edge. And Denzel had been working in the company and, you know, stitching it together, bootstrapping it for about five or six years. And he had gotten it to a place where he, he just woke up one day and said, this is beyond me. I, I can't get it to grow uh, the way I want. I need to have help. And, and so he, he went out and he was in the market of, or he was thinking about selling the company when uh, my business partner and I um, ran into him, um, and he said, well, this is what I'd like to do. This is my vision for the company. And uh, my business partner came to me one day. He showed me the opportunity, and I said, within 10 minutes, I was like, oh, we got to buy this company. It's, it's absolutely fabulous. Um, at that point, and that was the only time we raised outside capital, we raised outside capital, purchased ninety percent of the company from the founder. What did you pay for the business? Um, I have to apologize. I probably won't get to this right because I can't remember. It was somewhere in the neighborhood of two point seven million. Got it. And do you remember roughly what the revenue was for the company back then? One is about a million seven. Got it. So you paid, yeah, roughly I'm, one I'm, and a half times top very of revenue. Fuzzy numbers, John. So. Don't uh, don't hold me to them, but that's pretty good. Yeah. Yeah. No, that's and that's fine. What year was that that you bought the business? November of two thousand seven. Wow. Okay. So November two thousand seven, you bought the business, um, roughly turning over about a million five, and you bought it for two point seven. Uh huh. It still seems like a pretty high multiple for you know a relatively small business. Why did it garner in your mind such a high valuation? Well, uh, I think some of the some of the fun business fundamentals were great. Uh, the cost base was really low. We were really at the beginning of the boom for online education. He had uh, a lot of clients, but not a lot of penetration. So nice stable stable cash flow. Had he had no formal sales force. You, you, when you look at some of these things, you go into this business and you say. Before you buy it, you look at it and you say, can I really change the business by injecting a few changes into the business? And that's what we believed we could do. Uh, he, was a very, he, he did it very, in a very conservative way. We knew we, if we needed to, we could raise money. But what happened is we, we got in and we, we hired uh, what I would call a professional sales force we built in the first year. Uh, we had professional account management where we then started uh, to push out how we could expand the relationships with each of the clients or the schools that he had. And revenue rapidly started to climb. Um, and, and when you look at an opportunity before you buy it and you say, oh, there's, there's three things that I know I can do. Not only do I know I can do it, but I know if I add that, the business will be much more successful. 
then you can uh, you can feel comfortable providing or paying a premium for the price. And I'll tell you, John, that's exactly how we sold the business too. We identified the strategy, and I, I don't want to get too far ahead, but we identified the strategy that we thought would really make the company grow much faster. We identified the skill sets. They were skill sets that we did not have, but the ultimately that the acquirer of our business had. And we knew that they would be willing to and able to pay a premium price because they could bring those skill sets in and therefore reduce the integration risk and have a great company coming out of the other side. What was it that you saw in the professor's business that gave you a sense that the account management and sales force was not professional? Well, it, he was the one doing the sales and he was the one doing the account management. And don't get me wrong, Denzel is fabulous, fabulous guy. But you know, he, he was a uh, professor emeritus at UofL whose um, uh, area of specialty was special ed education. And so here was this guy running around the country in his Honda Accord, uh, having personal meetings with people and convincing the first couple of schools to come over the fence. And it was, he, you know, it was whoever would talk to him. No, no, uh, no um, strategic sales at all. Um, and very little time for him to do it. And he was doing it. He was a one man band. And so we 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 had uh, the knowledge to expand that very rapidly. Got it. So talk to us about talk to me about the the angel investment that you took on. Did did you bring on angel investors so that you could write the two point seven million dollar check to Denzel, or or did you want to share yeah. the risk, or what was the thinking there? So we um, you know ultimately what we did was we ultimately um, bought the company from Denzel and sold it to the investors. At the same time, and while we put in money of our own, um, we bought it for one price and raised money at a, a, a higher valuation, so that you know ultimately we had a, a, a little bit more stake in the company for doing the transaction. And so that was that was an interesting play. But you know, I always kid people and say it's it was almost like the no money down way of doing real estate. <laughs> which is a topic that would probably take an hour for me to explain. So I apologize. But no, no, that's okay. So you uh, you were making the case to the angel network that look, yeah, you're paying a premium over the 2.7 we're paying to Denzel, but you get us. Yes, that's right. Steve and, and the business partner. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, we had, you know, surprisingly or not surprisingly, it was kind of a surprise to us. We raised the money to buy the business probably within seven days. How'd you do that? It's in Louisville's a small market. Uh, we had had uh, success in a previous uh, company where we were able to sell that company and got a good return for investors here in town. And so once you do that the, the first time, they're a little bit, a lot of the people are more happy with you and are willing to take a chance for the second time around. You know, if I had a dollar for every time someone has said that, it's amazing because, you know, you talk to a first time entrepreneur who wants to raise money and it's like knocking their head against the wall trying to do it. Once you've had a successful exit, people line up to give you money, especially yeah. as you point out in a, uh, in a small yeah. market where folks know each other. So what was the, what was the post money valuation of Denzel's business? Uh, you know, once you guys were at play here, what were you valuing the business with you guys in it? 
um, four million dollars. Got That's it. That's a rough guess, right? Yeah, 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 yeah. So you're raising money for this business that, with you guys in place, you thought was worth closer to four. That's correct. So you grew this business between, uh, what is it, 2007, and you ultimately sold it in 2011, so I guess about a four-year run. What was the trigger that, that made you want to sell it? Well, it, it, was the, it was the realization that if we wanted to continue to grow the business, that we would need a pretty large capital injection. When we, when we studied the business, we, as, I, as I had said, we, we did everything from produce the content, uh, train the faculty, et cetera. But what we learned was that the colleges were willing to, to pay a greater price if you could bring students to them. Um, and this was this is one of the magic moments that we realized that we said, oh, look, if we were we could double or triple our revenue from each school if we could bring the students to them. And we started to explore this and we developed uh, and we developed some of the systems and the processes and hired a couple of the key people, but it, we realized that it would take a large capital injection, uh, and and I think now Learning House will will invest, uh, you know, ultimately two to three million dollars of their own money to develop the market for a, a targeted school that they work with, but they'll they'll also request and and get a larger portion of the tuition. Um, it was that realization that that we had to get we we'd have to have a larger capital injection. And we said, okay, it's been four years. Um, we believe the value of the business has grown to where a lot of our investors will, could realize a very good return on their money. Most of them probably are not signing up for this level of risk. And we need to give our investors the chance to uh, get out um, as we shift the dynamics of the business. And, and that was that was kind of the triggering point that said, "Hey, we need to go find a new a new pot for our our company to grow in." Did you guys consider bringing in a a more professional round of of venture money or you know as opposed to selling it outright, just another sort of tranche of uh, raising money? Well, we did, and we we talked to and interviewed uh, several investment bankers uh, and uh, we were either going to sell the company or um, raise a significant round of equity uh, as well. And what happened is, on the day that we decided to go full full bore on uh, an, another round, we had uh, the ultimate buyer come into our house or come into the business, express interest to just buy it outright. Told us that um, they would love to have us stay. Uh, and wanted to to make us an offer, and so you know it was off and running on more of a buy versus uh, raise process. And so, tell me practically how that happened. So, you're interviewing M and A bankers. Did, had had you actually hired an M and A professional? No, we hadn't. Okay, uh, we were we were about a week away from um, having a board meeting um, where we selected a banker when the ultimate buyer. Uh, came to our doorstep. When you say came to our doorstep, do you literally like what is what does that mean? Uh, they, they called you up. They sent you an email. Yeah, yeah. They you, one of the one of the surprising things is that a lot of times the buyers will come and seek you out, especially professional capital. Um, you know, even in my current business, I probably received two 
solicitations a, a week from people that are interested in investing uh, in the company. And so um, I remember uh, Todd Zipper reached out to my business partner, uh, David Richardson. They were both going to be at a trade show. Um, they sat down at the trade show, talked about the state of the business. Uh, we, we went through what, the, what we thought the model would be. They, um, well, North was the fund that bought the company. They immediately the following week came um, and met with us at our at our office. Um, we did a short presentation, just really largely a talk uh, about where we thought the industry was going, what the skill sets we needed to um, obtain, and the capital that we thought we'd need. Um, and from that conversation, they went back and and within a very short time frame, short enough that we we didn't we we delayed hiring a banker for uh, a couple weeks. Uh, invited us to New York, um, where we sat with the primary partners of the fund, talked about the company again, and um, by the time we were getting to our plane, they made us an offer. Um. When you were in New York for the second round of meetings, were you still under the assumption that Weld North might be making a significant investment as opposed to an acquisition offer? Um, no, I, I, they were very clear that after they left our office the first time that they had every intention not to do an equity investment, but to purchase this outright. Got it. And go ahead. You know, because we have... Um, because I'm not the only shareholder in the business and I'm not a sole owner, you know, your fiduciary responsibility is to your shareholders and you had to kind of pause. And if this was a credible, this is a credible fund and known for doing credible deals and you have to pause and hear what their offer is. So Weld North is a, for those who don't know, is a, is a private equity company. Um, is yes, that right? That's correct. Um, I, they were uh, founded or fa founded uh, by largely a partnership between KKR and Jonathan Grayer, uh, with the idea uh, that KKR wanted to experiment with longer-term investments, investments that they ultimately would hold uh, between five or between ten and twenty years. So, when they're in Louisville, ha have they thrown any numbers around in terms of valuation yet? No, uh, that first meeting there were, there was no conversation about uh, valuation. However, uh, you know there's the knowing looks, the glances, the discussion of reasonableness uh, and things like that. And it was really the second conversation where uh, they they asked us what our expectations were. We gave a range for a multiple based on revenue. What did you say? Um, four and seven times. Four to seven times revenue. Yeah. Was what, what was the nature of the revenue? Was it all recurring or or? Yes. Okay, so it was all on a recurring revenue model. So you thought, and where did you come up with four to seven? Why did you think that was reasonable? Well, uh, one of the benefits of interviewing a ton of bankers was that they, during the interview process, they would give make uh, and give you some analysis to indicate the range that they believed you would be in. 
if you were to uh, raise capital or to sell the business. And so we had, it was interesting, we had uh, interviewed five different bankers and the range was uh, probably a smattering of two times revenue to 10. Uh, we threw out the bottom and, and the top, believing that the bottom was just to uh, make sure that they could sell, make the transaction happen, and the top was a kind of pie in the sky. And that's how we got to the range that we had. And so you said four to seven. What was their, what described their face when you said those numbers? <laughs> They're very, you know, the, one thing I would tell you is that the, I have a great deal of respect for the people that well north. Um, Steve, Steve Berger was the, was the other partner. Uh, the, the man was one of the top 20 people at Lehman brothers. And he, I have never encountered a professional that knew how to do to buy a company as good as this guy. Um, and it was, a, it was like playing poker, uh, or maybe it was more akin to playing a very hard game of chess. There was absolutely no emotion, none. And, uh, you know, I used to, you know, some of my background was I've done 30 transactions. A lot of them have been on the buy side. But, you know, I was just astounded. These guys played it very close to the, to the heart and uh, no emotion at all. Were you tempted not to answer the question at all when he said, what's what valuation range are you looking for? We were. Um, however, I'll tell you, one of the things I've, I've learned from being on the other side of the table is, um, you know, you you have to you have to have confidence in you when you when you give a response to a question like that, you have to have confidence in your response. You know, as I said, luckily for us, we had talked to many different people who studied the space and gave us ideas of valuation. And so, you know, my partner and I felt very comfortable uh, giving a range. Uh, you know, obviously, you start. You, maybe you start the answer at the least you'd will, be willing to accept and then something you hope for. Um, but I don't, I don't, when you feel very confident about your rate, about your evaluation, I don't, I don't have a hard, I don't think it's bad to, to start the conversation. But aren't you putting uh, like a ceiling on, you know, the value of the business the, the moment you throw that, that bottom number of four to seven times, don't, isn't it sort of basically assured that you're never going to get more than four times or whatever the number you put out. Yeah. The, it is, it is, um, hard to go up from that number, but it's not, it's never a done deal. And, you know, one of the things that I would say is there's a lot more than just price, uh, to consider when you're selling your business. What else did you can think guys think about? You, you think about escrow, you think about how the structure of the deal. Well, Will it be all cash? Will, will you do a simultaneous sign and close? Uh, what's the risk of getting a deal done? What is a sign and close? Um, signing and closing on the same day is uh, a lot of a lot of times you'll sign the definitive agreement and then there'll be a a period where uh, the fund or the person you sign to has to assemble the money uh, or the compensation, the deal consideration, uh, and you'll close. It's sort of like you sign the agreement that you're going to buy the company, and then um, there's a closing period that could last anywhere from uh, minutes to uh, weeks or months. So this is different than them doing due diligence on you. This is after the That's due diligence. Correct. It's 
we're closing, definitive purchase agreement. We don't need to go raise these funds. We already have them is when somebody's willing to do a simultaneous sign and close. That's correct. Got it. That's correct. And you think about all those things in the thing. And, um, you know, it's not, it's not just, a lot of people get hung up on the price. And for some of the people that work in the venture capital or private equity world, if, if the thing that is most important to you is the price, then we can get to a price that, that will be paid or could be paid for your company, but the price could be determined on an earnout. So I might say to you, gee, I would love to pay uh, $20 million for your business, but it'll be $10 million uh, up front and then $10 million based on an earnout. And, and then the conversation now goes from um, negotiating the ultimate price of your, your transaction to negotiating what are the terms of the earnout, and then how will the company be run after? In your case, so, the, the, yeah, no, totally makes sense. So in your case, uh, the ultimate sale price, as I understand, was twenty seven point five million dollars. That's correct. On a on a on a on a business that had roughly uh, eight million in revenue, is that right? That's correct. So close to four times top line. What was the deal structure that you negotiated? Was there a big earnout component or? No, there was no earnout uh, component at all, and that was one of the things that made people happy. There was an escrow, though, and in my, you know, my opinion, the escrow was very uh, large. What was the escrow? Twenty percent. Yeah. And now what... I see most of the time I see ten percent escrows just to make sure, uh, you know, you go through an audit cycle or whatever. Yeah. So let's, let's talk about an escrow for those listening who who don't know the difference between an earnout and an escrow earnout is, is contingency payment based on the future performance of the business. An escrow is an amount you know, usually put in escrow with your like a, a neutral party or a law firm where, you know, uh, it, it's off of the books of, of the, either the buyer or the seller, but the, the buyer can, can make stake claim to that money. If for something that you held up in the negotiation doesn't hold up. It, it isn't truthful. You lied or there was some, you know, there was some material difference between what you said was the state of your business and what, is that fair, Steve? Am I doing John, it? You, you did a better job describing it than I've seen most professors do. So <laughs> like that, that's exactly right. <laughs> so in your case, it was 20%. Usually, you know, I've seen 10 is a pretty standard. So why were they asking for such a big escrow? Uh, they asked for it but, I don't know. We had uh, one of the things I would say is that uh, there was there's been no business that I've ever been involved in that was as tight as the learning house was as far as record keeping, uh, etc. I think that uh, you know this was an early deal for them in the in the uh, course of their fund. They wanted to make sure they had plenty of uh, juice. They wanted to show um, their limited partner that they could get good terms on a deal, there, any mat, number of things. You know, as I said, Steve Berger was probably one of the finest M&A people I've ever talked to. And he asked for it because he knew he could get it. Part of the reason they knew they could get it is we knew that we were very clean and that uh, there was really not much that, uh, that they could have laid claim to because uh, our books and our records were virtually perfect. What made Steve such a tough negotiation partner? Negotiation uh, opponent, I don't, I don't want to make it adversarial, but no, a tough guy to be I, on the other side of the table. 
but you, you, you don't want to say it's adversarial. He, he wasn't adversarial as most people would do. He was very professional. He's probably one of the most professional people I've encountered. Uh, what made him tough was uh, he had such immense deal experience. Uh, so that reflected in how they would talk to you, how he would uh, conduct due diligence. Uh, the terms, the, the nitty gritty terms of the uh, stock purchase agreement. Um, it's just the, all the language used in the stock purchase agreement were, was spot on and perfect with no wiggle room. Um, he negotiated uh, at his pace, uh, felt no pressure of a clock, uh, no, uh, no sense of urgency. So it was fabulous. Yeah, what did was, you personally learn from Steve that you'll take into your next deal? Like, give me one practical little tactic trick that he used that, that you'll use in your next deal. Um, he, he managed the clock. What does that uh, mean? He, he ran the deal on his terms, no matter how fast we wanted to go or what we said. Um, you know, he set a timeline for getting the deal accomplished, for doing due diligence, for doing negotiations, and he stuck to it religiously. He made no move. He made no concession. In, in negotiating the fine points, he made no concessions um, without getting something that he really wanted uh, in return, something that he felt would make a better deal for his partners. Give me an example of something that would have made a better deal for his partners that he he went to bat for. Well, I think I think uh, the easy thing to say is the twenty percent escrow to make sure that he had that backstop for for his fund. Uh, you know, he knew that uh, we were excited to have the opportunity to work with some of the people at Weld North uh, to further the business. They conceded. Uh, stuff to keep us involved in the business, yet they painted a very good future of the, of, for the company, for the employees, which was very appealing to us. He also knew um, that uh, because we believed in our record keeping and uh, so much that this might be an easy point to give on because he knew that we weren't worried about getting the escrow money back. And so reading us and reading the uh, confidence that we had in our numbers, he pushed that, um, giving, uh, you know, asking for that 20% escrow and then giving on um, the, the idea of funding post, you know, committing to actual funding of the company post uh, the acquisition, that it was very appealing to us. Tell me about, the the way you managed your investors because you had this pool of angels that have contributed money helped you buy the business in the first place H how are you bringing them along in in your negotiations with Weld North so we had uh we had a very active board uh of seven people and when we received um the LOI it was a non-binding letter of intent um, we had a board meeting. We walked through the offer. We walked through the future of the business. We looked at aspects of how likely were we to raise a new round of venture capital, what the terms of that would be. Um, and in so doing, walking through all the uh, things and having a board meeting, 
the board agreed we should pursue that opportunity. At that point, we didn't have to bring or make any other disclosures to shareholders. And it was only after we got to uh, just about signing the definitive agreement that we then conducted a shareholder meeting. We called all shareholders, said, hey, we have a potential buyer for the company. The board has authorized us to negotiate with, and we have ne completed negotiation. We have this, this definitive agreement. Uh, we made you know, the appropriate number of copies, sent it out ahead of time, and then conducted a uh, shareholder meeting to walk through the documents, uh, walk through the rationale for saying yes to the deal, and we took a vote. And what was the... I was unanimous. They so. must have been walking on cloud nine. I mean, if I'm doing my math right, their return on investment was kind of like eight to one. Yeah. Over a five-year period. It was very good. <laughs> Can I lend you some money, Steve? I don't know if you... <laughs> <laughs> I'd like to invest in whatever the hell you've got going on next. Be careful, John. I'm <laughs> yeah. doing another one. Oh, really? Yeah. Um, this was, is this It is was impressive. a good return. And, yeah. you know, more importantly, it was a great return for our area. And it really helped the um, entrepreneurial community here in Louisville, because as you can imagine, there's not a ton of uh, M&A deals or um, transaction like, transactions like ours. Um, very useful. What were the biggest differences between the material deal points in the LOI and the final share purchase agreement? Uh you know, I think the initial LOI was for twenty-eight and a half million, and so there was a one million dollar reduction uh, in the valuation that was negotiated deeper into the deal, and I that probably was the biggest difference. And you know, I think this is one of the things that you have to, uh, as you're selling the company, you have to be okay with and understand that sometimes the price isn't going to end up being the price. And you have to continue continue to evaluate what are what are the, your objectives, what are your shareholders' objectives uh, along the way, and what, what sometimes was it you have to concede, concede some things. Right? Yeah, well, how did Steve and Todd sort of justify the reduction of the price? Was there, I mean, was it just because, or did they give you some reason as to why they were dropping the price? No, the, the biggest thing uh, that came, that they said. Uh, they needed help on was our systems, while we're good, were not what they expected us to have. And they anticipated having to spend an extra million dollars to um, port our system, our primary system, to a more scalable infrastructure. And you, you, could, you could argue this, you could battle it, you could say, yeah, no, that's not right. But Ultimately, we made the decision uh, that they were right. Um, our system was on a, uh, a pretty limiting uh, scale or uh, infrastructure. And I believe you know, when the deal closed, within three months, work began to port it over to a more scalable infrastructure. And, and sometimes you've got you to gotta say, yeah, you guys are right. Steve, one of the things that I'm curious about is is how you how you felt through the process. Uh, you know, let's. I, I'd love to get inside your head because here here you are looking at a, just a massive return, a huge win. But across the table, you're you're 
working with some very sophisticated people who, to your yeah. own admission, you know, don't budge easily, don't move on major points. Yeah. Were you feeling at their mercy or how did you feel just qualitatively in the, in the depths of the negotiation? So it's, it's, it's interesting. Um, you know, across the table from me was this guy and he was, he's literally a top 20 at Lehman. Now Lehman doesn't exist, but uh, Harvard, double Harvard educated guy who had more deal experience than most anyone. And while I felt pretty confident in my own skill set, having done a lot of transactions, I was no, I'm nowhere near uh, the level of professional. And it was it was sort of like playing chess against a grandmaster. And what the the stress of that really was, uh, and you know that. I wanted the chess match to be over as soon as possible. Please end my pain. Um, and I think that is probably one of the things that you say, no, you've got to just, you've got to have a lot of endurance and you've got to keep going and you got to stick your ground. You have to sit there and understand what, what you really want, what you need to have the transaction be. Um, and, and it was this back and forth. I kept this, um, I kept this incredible journal of a, the daily experience. Um, I now have it tucked away in my desk, and at some point I'll I'll relive it. Um, but I remember I, every Saturday I would catch up my daily log, and it it literally was just playing chess. I was mentally exhausted by the time it was done. Do you have the book in front of you? Can you read us a page? <laughs> I wish I, I wish I did. It's actually buried in a drawer at home. Uh, it it, it uh, you know my son said, well, you ought to turn it into a book. I'm like, oh no. No, you don't want to have that happen. Um, you, you, books are for you guys. Uh, I'll keep all my notes to myself. Um, but it it was it was a very draining experience. And I remember on the day we signed the definitive agreement, um, you know, my my wife at the time, she said, "Well, let's go have dinner and celebrate." And I was like, "Okay." And um, all through dinner, she was asking me, "You don't seem that excited." I said, well, I'm just tired. And I remember I went home and slept. Uh, I got home at 8.30 after having dinner because I was, she probably thought it was the worst dinner ever because I didn't talk. And I slept for 12, 13 hours. Um, and then, um, because it wasn't a simultaneous, it was, it was a month later until the money actually showed up in your account. And I, you know, I think if there was something that I could tell people that are going through the process of selling your business, you know, you don't stop. You don't really stop until after you do post-acquisition integration, but you don't count your money until it's actually in your account because there's still risk. After, even after you sign a definitive agreement, there are always outs. And um, you, you, you got you to just do it one step at a time. And to be clear, there was a period of, of time between the definitive agreement was closed and signed, and the the wire actually hit your bank account. How how long was that for you? Well, it feels like it was like ten years, but uh, I think uh, it, all told, it was four weeks. Interesting, and that was as a result of the fact that it was not a sign and closed deal. That's right. the The way that this the their fund worked was they they had the the they would find and close or sign on a deal. And then do an equity call, and it took it, their part. Their limited partners had up to th three weeks to get their funds 
uh, moved into the account. Out of interest, what would have happened had they signed the definitive purchase agreement, but then reneged in that three-week period? I think that there were, I, I, I don't remember all the, the stuff on it, but there was a breakup fee. Uh, typically, when something like that happens, one side wants to sue the other side, and it turns into a sweltering mess. That's some of, you know, that, that actually is the thing that makes most deals go through uh, without some material uh, change in the business or something that one party just out and out lies to another on uh, most deals close. But you still, you know, you being on the people that are involved in the deal are typically a little nervous. Yeah. Until uh, it gets closed or funded, I should say. As you look back at the learning house with, you know, there's a few years under the bridge now where since you've left, yeah. what word or phrase comes to mind when you think of that stage in your life? Uh, worried, um, uh, maybe under the gun. It was a lot of fun. Roller coaster. I, I think that's one of the big things. Is when you're involved in a, a company, a, an early stage company, it's a roller coaster. I can tell you, I had one of the best days of my professional career in that in that company, and I also had one of my worst. Uh, we had uh, a year before we did the transaction with Weld North. We had another party that wanted to make a large investment in the firm, uh, and while negotiating the deal, it was very near the end. We had our largest client. Uh, uh, terminate their relationship with us. And so in the stroke of, you know, an hour, 25% of our revenue left. And that, that was like the worst day of my life hmm. uh, to, to that point. And then the best day was, uh, you know, the ultimate valuation that we had was $10 million higher a year later. So the valuation uh, that Weld North uh, placed on the business. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. That's right. Fantastic. Um, Steve, where can people get in touch with you today? Uh, I am at stevehuey at gmail.com or at Stephen Huey on Twitter. Um, I still, I'm in Louisville, Kentucky, and I'm working on my next company, which is a lot of fun. And the new company is called? Capture Higher Ed, and we help colleges uh, attract students, traditional students mainly. We, use, we have developed marketing automation software using machine learning and narrow AI to help colleges get college students. Sounds fantastic. So captureHigherEd.com? Yes, that's right. Steve Hugh, thanks for joining us. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. Thanks for listening to Built to Sell Radio with John Warlow. For complete show notes with links to additional resources, visit builttosell.com slash blog. John is the founder of the Value Builder System. To find out how to improve the value of your business by 71%, visit valuebuildersystem.com. John is also the author of Built to Sell, creating a business that can thrive without you and the automatic customer, creating a subscription business in any industry. Connect with John at Facebook.com slash Built to Sell or on Twitter at John Warlow, W-A-R-R-I-L-L-O-W.